Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to episode 375 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by my new book, The Complete Compliance Handbook, which will be published in April by Compliance Week. You can check out more information on my new book at www.fcpacompliancereport.com where it's available for free purchase. As an extra added benefit, if you would like a paper on the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, which is based upon the information in my book, I'm happy to make that available to you as well. You can text FCPA FOX, that's FCPA FOX, all caps, to the number 44222 and receive a complimentary copy of my paper on the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. That's FCPA Fox, text that to 44222. Today I continue my exploration of the implications from the Supreme Court decision in Digital Realty Trust versus Summers. I have Steve Durham. Steve is a white collar and whistleblower practitioner at Labaton Sushiro in Washington, D.C., and he talks to us about the implications of the Digital Realty Trust decision from the perspective of the whistleblower and the Whistleblower Council. I think you will find it a fascinating exploration of the both intended and unintended consequences of this most recent Supreme Court decision on the definition of who is a whistleblower. This is Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode. Today, we continue our exploration of the impact of the Digital Realty Trust versus Summers case. I have back with me Steve Durham. Steve is a, a former uh, DOJer and now it handles uh, or helps rather whistleblowers in uh, Dodd-Frank whistleblowing actions. So, uh, Stephen, with that short introduction, welcome and thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Tom, thank you. Thank you for having me uh, back on the program. It's a pleasure to be here. So this case, uh, uh, although as we were discussing uh, prior to coming on board, was a 9-0 decision, and the uh, we both, uh, I think, agreed the, on the legal reasoning and the legal decision, the, really the practical impacts on this case in a wide variety of situations, settings for individuals, for corporations, for the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, for people like yourself, are going to be wide, varied, and deep. And I really am trying to help uh, my listeners understand some of the different perspectives on where this case may take us. So uh, most of my listeners are aware of the um, the case, but just briefly, the Supreme Court narrowed the definition of whistleblower under Dodd-Frank to be uh, persons who uh, submitted information to the Securities and Exchange Commission, meaning if uh, someone went to their employer their company first, or, or, or initially, uh, they could still be terminated and not have Dodd-Frank uh, protections. So with that, uh, Stephen, I see a wide variety of implications. Uh, where do you want to start on this one? I think the best place to start is just, you know, what the opinion holds itself and, and the implications of that. So the opinion says, as you point out, is that if you do not report uh, to the SEC Office of the Whistleblower, uh, you are not a whistleblower, as the term is defined under Dodd-Frank, and accordingly, 
because you're not a whistleblower, you're not entitled to avail yourself of the protections, the uh, employment, the anti-retaliation protection that Dodd-Frank provides. So now you're still entitled to avail yourself of whistleblower protections under Sarbanes-Oxley. And so it's not as if you don't have any protections at all, any any anti-retaliation protections. But the important uh, takeaway from this, Tom, is that the Dodd-Frank protections uh, were in many respects uh, uh, superior to what was written into Sarbanes-Oxley. And, and in, in three material respects, if I could just for a moment. Um, so Sarbanes-Oxley has a 180-day uh, filing uh, deadline, uh, whereas Dodd-Frank, uh, the person can file up to six years from the time of the violation. So there's a very important uh, time uh, frame there. Uh, another important difference is Sarbanes-Oxley has an exhaustion requirement. So you have to first go to the uh, Department of Labor uh, and file administratively. Whereas with Dodd-Frank, uh, the whistleblower is entitled to file directly uh, in United States District Court. And then another uh, important takeaway, uh, another important distinction is that with Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, the award is for back pay, whereas with Dodd-Frank, uh, Dodd-Frank recognizes double back pay. And there are some other differences as well. So, you know, the bottom line is, is if people want to avail themselves of the protection of Dodd-Frank whistleblower, any retaliation uh, protections, uh, then now they have to file uh, with the SEC. And that's, that's, uh, that, that has large implications, as you stated. So one of the immediate things I would say from the corporate perspective is, uh, I don't know if you were uh, re recall, but during the rulemaking process and commentary, uh, corporate America wanted um, whistleblowers to be required to report internally first. And from my perspective, as someone who works on com compliance programs and the nuts and bolts of compliance, that reason is so that uh, companies uh, will have an opportunity to uh, remediate, uh, take care of the problem. Uh, it may be that the problem really is not a uh, does not rise to a securities law violation, and you know perhaps there could be some education. But certainly, if there's a problem, if there's a violation or anything in between, the company would have the opportunity to remediate it, uh, self-disclose as appropriate, uh, but without. Um, that opportunity, obviously, if you go to the SEC directly, a company may not know about it, and this may allow, or not allow rather, but would the effect would be that a, um, a problem could fester, and it could, uh, as uh, <laughs> when many things fester, they get worse. So something that could be a problem could raise itself to becoming a violation. If it's a violation to start with, uh, it could be compounded and continue on. And obviously, by going to the SEC directly, the company would not have the opportunity to self-report and uh, avail itself of any discounts or uh, goodwill or cooperation credit uh, that they could receive by self-reporting. So I really see, uh, see this decision as something that is not in the interest of corporate America. Uh, do you find that to be uh, accurate or, or is it something else you see? No, I, I agree with you, Tom, and that's been our argument and our practice's argument uh, from the outset is that, you know, in some ways it, it, it provides an incentive. And now you have to go to the SEC when in, in the past and we always just as an aside, we we almost always not always, but but in most of the cases, our clients, we encourage our clients to report internally. 
And the reason we do that is because companies have put time and resource into internal reporting and internal investigation mechanisms. And many times uh, the companies, as you point out, uh, you can have an opportunity to take a look at it. And if there is remediation that needs to be done, many times the companies can get out in front of problems uh, and mitigate those problems uh, and, and save a lot of heartache. But what this the decision will do, and I believe in some ways it's an unintended consequence, um, is that now employees uh, who feel that they want to avail themselves of Dodd-Frank retali anti-retaliation, they, they have to go to the SEC. So the question then, there are a number of questions, but one question is this, is, is will that encourage more people who would report internally anyway? Would that, will that encourage them to bypass the internal reporting system entirely? Um, and that's an open question. I think if somebody is predisposed to report internally, they're probably going to continue to report internally. Our advice to most of our clients is going to be report internally, because if you don't report internally, at the end of the process and during the process, the Office of the Whistleblower at the SEC, they want to know, did you report internally? And if you didn't, why not? And you better be prepared to have a, a pretty valid reason. And sometimes there are valid reasons. Um, but I think that that also the, the other effect here is that the Office of the Whistleblower at the SEC is going to get a higher volume uh, of, uh, of reports coming in. And last year, we know from uh, its own reporting that the SEC Office of the Whistleblower received over 4,400 complaints. The SEC uh, as an entity received 20,000. Uh, so the volume of 4,400, uh, which is, uh, you know, a, a number every single day, there's complaints coming in. That volume, I believe, based on this decision, is going to increase. So uh, and then there are questions as to, uh, you know, how is how are these additional tips going to be uh, received and processed? And and the end game here, you know, the ultimate goal in this, as the as the Supreme Court has pointed out, the core objective of the of the uh, uh, Dodd-Frank whistleblower program is to aid the commission's enforcement efforts by, by, quote, motivating people who know of securities law violations to tell the SEC. So the, another open question is, is the SEC, as a result of this decision, the office of the whistleblower, is the SEC going to get, they're certainly going to get a higher volume, Tom, but are they going to get uh, a higher volume of quality uh, information. That is information that ultimately leads uh, to an enforcement action. And that also, uh, I think, is an open question. So that really is is two points. Uh, I had focused on the first one, which was the, the quantity that, of the complaints that would go to the whistleblower's office, the quantum. But you've really identified another issue, which may, at the end of the day, may, may be equally, if not more important, which is the quality of the complaints. Uh, could you maybe flesh that out a little, little bit? Because I think uh, in terms of unintended consequences, this could have significant impact on the office of the whistleblower. Um, sure, I'd be happy to. So the way the program operates um, is that the SEC receives information on what they call a, a TCR form, a tip complainer referral form. And the tip complainer referral form, the more detailed the information, uh, the better chance that somebody has uh, to, to become a successful whistleblower. Because the, the SEC is looking for 
uh, detailed, original information uh, that's independent. So the the quality of the information is is a is a large driver. So we represent clients, and you know we're a very selective practice. We take only about a dozen cases a year, but the cases we take we we vet very carefully, and we try to handicap because we want to make sure that the information that the SEC gets is very very high quality information. Now that information has to lead to an enforcement action. So even if it's truthful, even if it's good information, even if it's helpful, if it doesn't lead to an enforcement action, then there's no whistleblower award. So it has to lead to an enforcement action. And if it does lead to an enforcement action, it has to be significant because the SEC uh, will only pay a whistleblower if the enforcement is a million dollars or more. So we're constantly trying to, and we get uh, you know dozens of inquiries uh, a, a week in our practice. And what we're trying to constantly do is we're trying to vet information. Is this a good case? Will it lead to an enforcement action? Will it be significant? Um, is this a good client? Uh, because you know the client has to come in uh, with with reasonably clean hands. Uh, you know the client can't be involved in. Um, you know, th- committing crimes or, or dishonesty or, or misleading information. So uh, we're constantly in the process of trying to evaluate the strength of cases. And so, you know, it goes back to what I was saying. And, and, and your point is, you know, the objective here is for the SEC to encourage people and motivate people who know of securities violations uh, that are of high quality. And uh, so what does this decision do? Um, uh, hopefully it encourages people uh, on the margins uh, to when they otherwise wouldn't, they say, well, OK, I'm going to report internally and I'm going to leave it at that because, you know, I'm just not uh, I'm not cut out to be a whistleblower. I don't want to be a whistleblower. There may be situations where now, uh, given uh, the strong anti-retaliation provisions of Dodd-Frank, people say, well, you know, I'm sticking my neck out here by reporting internally. And they are. There's no question about it. Um, even in anonymous uh, reporting hotlines, uh, you know, you kind of stick your neck out there a little bit to try to do the right thing. But so now um, people may say, you know, the decision tree may operate in the following manner. Well, I'm going to report internally. And I think we have a pretty good compliance system. Um, but but I don't have any guarantees um, or, you know, I may not trust the compliance system. And I've certainly heard that in our practice. So, well, you know, what should I do? Because I don't want to be fired. I don't want to be demoted or isolated or retaliated against. How do I deal with this? And the answer is, you know, you need to go report uh, to the SEC office of the whistleblower and then at that point, you trigger uh, the enhanced protections provided by Dodd-Frank. So again, Tom, a lot of open questions, uh, but these are the kind of questions that we're already dealing with in our practice. And, uh, you know, that's that's what we do. I mean, that's that's our specialty. So, Stephen, uh, you raised two, uh, your, your discussion raises two more points specifically to the SEC and the Office of the Whistleblower that I'd like to go into. First of all, it occurs to me that if there is a a greater number of whistleblower complaints, a plethora of uh, claims come in, uh, uh, tips, whatever it may be, that the SEC um, 
I don't want to say will be overwhelmed, but they certainly could get a large number which would kind of slow down their investigative process and elongate the time between an initial report of a whistleblower and a final resolution with a company, uh, causing, uh, uh, if not staleness, certainly a, a longer period of time. And if, if a company is doing something, frankly, the, not that the conduct would get worse, but the, the fine and penalty could, could increase. The second thing is, frankly, I think this decision uh, puts, I'm not sure if it puts more pressure on the SEC, but it certainly puts more pressure, I think, on people like yourselves and people with a whistleblower practice, because I think the SEC will now rely on people who do the vetting that you and your firm do and present the information in a manner that uh, is uh, can be easily translatable into an enforcement action. How do you feel about those two issues? Uh, I, again, I think you've uh, touched on uh, a very relevant point. So, you know, what we try to do, because, you know, you, you point out, which I, I think is inevitable, the decision is going to produce more uh, TCRs, more tips, uh, more information, more filings. So the SEC Office of the Whistleblower got over 4,400 in 2017 in fiscal 17. And, and if I had to guess, uh, you know, even without the decision coming down the way it did, I, I think it would have increased into in fiscal 18. But with the decision coming down the way it did, and I, I don't want to speculate, uh, you know, is it going to go above 5,000? Is it going to go above 6,000? I don't know, but I can tell you it's going to increase. But your point, uh, you know, regarding volume, uh, you know, lends itself to this. And that is the SEC already deals, the Office of the Whistleblower already deals with an exceptionally high volume of matters. And they do it exceptionally well, uh, given the volume and given the information. And a lot of the information comes in, um, you know, half-baked. Some of it comes in, it's not baked at all. It's just, you you know, if I could use an analogy... Here are a bunch of ingredients. I'm going to pour them on the table. You sort them out and make sense of them. It's supposed to be a cake. I don't even know what flavor or kind it is. You know, some of the information comes in a little bit more developed, a little bit more baked. You know, our objective in what we do and the value that we bring to the table uh, for uh, uh, executives and others who, who become our clients is we bake the cake as much as we possibly can. Uh, and if we can fully bake it, I mean, between myself and my partners, we have over 60 years of SEC enforcement experience, uh, you know, another 25 at the DOJ and five in-house in a compliance, uh, a corporate compliance office. So we try to bake the cake as much as we can. And, and the more fully we can bake it and the more complete it becomes, um, the more efficiently the SEC can use its own resources so it can cut right to the chase and uh, of course, there's other additional work the SEC has to do. We're, we're not a, 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 you know, a surrogate. Uh, you know, we left the government. Uh, but, but that being said, um, we give the SEC as much information. We put together basically what operates as a prosecution memo, uh, where we identify witnesses, we identify information, we identify key documents, we identify emails. We make suggestions as to where to look for documents, who to ask. We provide uh, as complete a roadmap as we can. And I think in the wake of this decision, Tom, that that these services 
uh, will become even more valuable because the SEC is going to continue to try to use its resources in the most efficient manner possible. So, you know, the people are, who are able to provide that kind of level of detail, uh, those legal theories, uh, the precedent, uh, I think uh, certainly uh, are, are in uh, excellent standing. Uh, all I can say is, wow, uh, the the number of potential consequences from this Supreme Court decision, really, um, we are just beginning to scratch the surface. And uh, I'm uh, now convinced that, like I said, people like yourself will also be uh, put under more pressure in addition to the SEC, in addition to corporate compliance officers and corporate compliance programs, and frankly, corporations as well. So uh, lots of consequences here. And um, it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out going forward. Um, Stephen, if someone wanted to get in touch with the firm or yourself, is there a mechanism by which uh, they could do so? Is there something on link on the firm website? Yes. The best way to get in touch with us and also the best way for people to engage in self-education is to visit our website. It's www. Uh, secwhistlebloweradvocate.com, all one word, secwhistlebloweradvocate.com. It's a dedicated website. Um, you know, I'm a partner at Labatan Susharo, uh, which is, uh, you know, a, a, a very elite uh, securities class action in any trust firm. But our practice uh, is, is part of Labatan Susharo. So the website, Tom, has a tremendous amount of information uh, that that uh, my partner Jordan Thomas has spent years uh, putting together, uh, literally years putting together uh, all kinds of information about the program, eligibility, uh, securities laws, a primer on securities, uh, and any other information. And then, of course, uh, you can contact any of us uh, directly uh, through that website. So I'm vis- I've been visiting with Steve Durham. Steve is a partner and whistleblower representation practice at Labaton Sushiro. Uh, he uh, has a significant government experience working with the SEC and now represents uh, uh, senior execs and uh, other high-level folks in whistleblower cases in front of the Securities and Exchange Commission. We've been visiting on some of the impacts and uh, consequences from the digital, digital Realty Trust versus Summers decision. It's been a fascinating exploration. And if there was ever a, a time to use my famous tagline, which was um, the, the discussion will continue, I think, Stephen, uh, this is one uh, situation where I look forward to continuing the discussion. I do too, Tom. Uh, this has uh, been very uh, interesting. And uh, please feel free to reach out if there's any other information or assistance I can give you or anybody else. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you would listen to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the oldest podcast around on FCPA and compliance. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We're going to continue to explore the implications of the Digital Realty Trust decision over the next uh, several podcasts, so tune in. I'm also going to release a uh, white paper on this uh, most important case as well. So look forward to that. Thank you again for joining me, and I hope you'll join me again for the next episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. 
The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.